Hello and welcome to another brand new episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. My name is Paul Hindle, editor of Fintech Futures, and for this episode, we're joined by Nicholas Sue, Regional Head of Payments Products Asia at HSBC. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Paul. Really looking forward to our conversation. Great to have you here. Just to get started, and would you like to quickly let us know a bit more about yourself and then what you're up to at HSBC? Sure. So, Paul, I very boring. I'm a career payments banker, and I currently run HSBC in our payments product franchise here in Asia. And I think Asia itself, right, super exciting, uh, given the breadth and diversity of the region. And I think the pace of change here is just immense as well. In addition to HSBC, I also do really have the privilege of chairing the SWIFT shareholder community in Hong Kong. So also trying, right, where I can to positively influence outcomes at the industry level. And just in general, I'm a really keen observer of all things payments, fintech and web tree. And hopefully that comes across, right? maybe with some really nerdy payments points as well. Excellent, excellent. That sounds good to me. It doesn't sound boring at all to me. On the show this week, we're going to be diving into a bit more on central bank digital currencies as our main topic for the week. We've seen a raft of activity in recent months, a number of pilots being launched globally. In the UK specifically as well, the government has recently laid out its plans for the future of a digital pound, which Chancellor Jeremy Hunt says will form a major piece of national infrastructure. So we'll be diving into this topic over the show, covering the different types of CBDCs currently being explored, the pros and cons, as well as potential use cases. All of that's to come a little bit later, but as always, to get us started is our News in Numbers segment. So this is where our guest has gone out and found a news story featuring an interesting number to discuss to get us started. So Nick, what have you brought along for us today? Thanks, Paul. I'm going to be greedy and actually give you two and actually referencing the point that you just made, right? There was actually a great speech by the Deputy Governor of the Bank of England in early February, actually coinciding with the release of the Digital Pound Consultancy paper. There were some great nuggets in that speech. What to me really stood out were two really interesting stats on payments in the UK. The first is that less than 5% of funds held for making payments are only are in the form of cash. And actually then only 15% of transactions in the UK in 2021 involve physical money. So doing the math, the remainder 85% are commercial bank money. So Paul, we will get into these points in a bit more detail later on. But to me, right, these stats really just add a lot more weight to the Bank of England's stated primary motivation for the digital pound, which is to ensure their role as the anchor in the monetary system. Yeah, it was a very interesting speech that he made. Like I say, it was, I think he said in the last 15 years or so, that number has decreased from 60% kind of like cash transactions down to around the 15% now. So I guess assumption-wise will be that physical cash is only going to shrink even further moving forwards as well. So how mindful do firms need to be at the moment then in terms of the different forms of money currently at play, as well as new forms that might start arising as well in the future? So Paul, that's... A great question. Uh, and if you will indulge me, I would actually just love to spend a couple of minutes to set the scene with our mm -hmm. audience on kind of the main types of money that are in use today. And hopefully once we have that common ground, I think various governments, including the UK motivations for CBDCs and also some of its related concerns could be a bit more apparent to our audience. So the first thing I want to outline to everyone is that there are three broad forms of money. And from my anecdotal Evidence, not very scientific, but evidence nonetheless of conversations with friends, family, colleagues, is that most people are oblivious, right? That there are these three different forms of money and perhaps with good reason. So let's dive into that. 
The first form of money is what we call central bank issued money. And for most of the public, this is experienced as cash. So the physical notes and coins that we are decreasingly using. The second is commercial bank money, which makes up the majority of money as we experience today. And this really is a key point that we'll come back to later. And the third form is privately issued money. So on the one hand, uh, you have highly regulated forms such as regulated e-wallets and common examples would say be Ali and WeChat in China, Octopus and HSBC's PayMe wallet in Hong Kong, uh, or the Oyster card in the UK. On the other end of the spectrum, you would have cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, ETH, uh, or even stable coins. So Paul, the reason why I feel we are mostly oblivious these three different forms of money is that with the exception perhaps of crypto, all these forms of money are fully interoperable and, and they are accepted at par value. So let me just give you an example, maybe to bring that to life even more. So let's say I pay my friend $100 in cash. That cash is a liability of the central bank or a claim on the central bank. And he then deposits that $100 note into his bank account. So that $100 note is now has been transformed into electronic commercial bank money, right, which is the liability of the commercial bank. Tomorrow morning, he goes to his usual coffee shop and he realizes that his usual e-wallet is running low. He uses his e-wallet because the shop gives him a discount and he then does an immediate bank top-up into his e-wallet. So that $100 is actually now e-money. So in that simple scenario, Paul, we have gone through three different forms of money and my friend is none the wiser and arguably he doesn't need to be, right? So why did I go through that trouble of explaining all that? Well, firstly, at least now, we know that there's three different forms of money and retail CBDC is largely positioned as a digital replacement for cash. And also, and this is a key point, if you believe that privately issued forms of money such as crypto are on the rise, it's not surprising for central banks to respond given their mandate. And finally, Paul, you will hear a lot about CBDCs. You will also start to hear even more about other forms of money such as tokenized deposits. These are likely, say, DLT-based programmable forms of commercial bank money or maybe even regulated stablecoins in the future. So in short, there are many horses in this race and to keep things interesting and maybe even confusing for us, but never a dull day in payments. I guess focusing on that main area of CBDCs then, I mean, you've gone into kind of a brief kind of overview there, but can you give us a bit more detail in terms of the types of CBDCs that central banks are exploring at the moment? Sure, happy to. I haven't come across a universally agreed, you know, form of CBDC taxonomy. So I'll just start with the most basic, which is retail versus wholesale, which quite simply just describes who are the end users of a CBDC. So in the case of a retail CBDC, the users are actually consumers like you and me. Whilst wholesale CBDCs are used by banks when they interact you know, with one another or the central bank in a wholesale manner, as the term suggests. And we will discuss later that there really isn't too much controversy over wholesale CBDCs, largely because, again, the general public doesn't have much practical experience with how banks deal with one another for settlement. But on the retail CBDC side, we will learn that there's a fair amount of debate on the necessity for CBDCs, particularly in developed markets where there are relatively higher levels of financial inclusion. Retail CBDCs, Paul, are actually live today in some markets. So Jamaica and Bermuda are the two best examples. 
We have the China's ECNY, which has been in pilot phase for about two and a half years now, as well as the eNaira in Nigeria. We will also get into wholesale CBDCs, but just to signpost a couple of good examples, there's the Project Enbridge, which is an experiment run by the central banks of Hong Kong, China, UAE, as well as Thailand, and also multiple other innovative projects that the Bank de France has run. So, Paul, I've covered the two main categories of CBDCs, which are wholesale versus retail. Just wanted to share with the audience that there are some other dimensions or design choices, as we like to call them, such as international versus domestic, account versus token-based, or direct versus indirect. We will get into some of these points a bit later on as well. Sounds good. Just switching the focus then back to the UK, as you mentioned before, Bank of England and Treasury recently said they plan to accelerate the work on the technology and policy architecture for that digital pound, suggesting it'll be more of a retail CBDC and would be used by households and businesses for their everyday payments needs. Um, what would you say then are the pros and cons of a retail CBDC like this in light of the various payment schemes and infrastructure that already provides real-time payments? And what's the kind of, I guess, impetus for people to start using this as opposed to, to other forms of payment? That's a very relevant question, Paul. Like, really, what problem uh, are you solving? And before we dive into the pros and cons, I think it's actually equally, if not more important, to establish the why, right? Or in this case, the motivations of the BOE in exploring retail CBDC. And in this case, you don't really need to read the tea leaves too much. It's been very straightforward, given how clear and candid both the speech and the consultation paper was. And as per the paper, the primary motivation really is for the central bank to retain their position as the anchor for the monetary system with the goal to ensure financial stability. And from many of the other papers that I read from other central banks, this is actually slightly different. Some of the other central banks have quite clearly stated that they either want to reduce uh, the usage of cash, some central banks really want to support boosting financial inclusion, whereas some others have also stated it's really about curbing the rise of cryptocurrencies. And I think this is quite understandable given the relatively high levels of financial inclusion in the UK and you know, as we cited earlier, low usage of cash. And what I find interesting, Paul, is that central banks in other developed markets have actually reached well, at least an interim position that a retail CBDC may not actually be necessary. So I think, again, I mean, it's just really interesting to see the different motivations and how different central banks have reached a slightly different conclusions on the necessity of a CBDC, as you had asked earlier. So let me finally answer your question, pros and cons. The purported benefits of a retail CBDC, typically within the domain of cost, programmability, speed, and access. I feel cost, speed, and access uh, are quite straightforward or self-explanatory, so I'll, I'll, perhaps I'll skip those. Programmability, on the other hand, refers to how digital money can actually be programmed. And I think some good examples would be, say, triggering a payment upon certain conditions are being met, or perhaps even then limiting spend of a CBDC to certain categories. I think this was perhaps referenced in one of the earlier speeches as well. So I'm sure many of your audience will point out each one of these points can be debated for and against, particularly in the context of a developed economy like the UK. Which is why, going back to my earlier point, the consultancy paper really does seem to read that the BOE's aims here are slightly more defensive in nature, as evidenced by comments that we made at the start of our conversation as well. And on cons, as per your question, Paul, there are also concerns with a retail CBDC, which 
I think often boil down to these few areas. It's uh, the big one is disintermediation of banks. Their concerns on the cost of running the system. Their concerns, which have been listed around fragmentation, because it's likely that retail CBDCs, at least in the initial phase, will be an additional rail as opposed to a like-for-like replacement. And there's also been very well-documented concerns when it comes to privacy. So if there's one area, perhaps, Paul, that's worth diving into a bit more detail given the amount of literature on this topic, is really around the point of disintermediation, given how heavily it was cited in the UK's paper and multiple other central banks, including some couple of great papers from the Bank of Canada uh, on this topic. So as I highlighted earlier, a design choice that central banks face are whether retail CBDC should be direct or indirect. In this case, a direct model simply means that the central bank is responsible for everything. And I mean everything from operating the ledger, distributing the CBDC, and even day-to-day management of the mechanism by which users like you and I, Paul, use the CBDC. And as central banks go today, I think it'll be quite obvious to everyone, that's not how they operate. They do not operate accounts like a high street bank. And I believe that's not how the vast majority of central banks want to operate. So... That's why I think in most countries that are exploring retail CBDCs, an indirect model is a lot more likely. And I think BOE stated that in their paper as well. So indirect model really just means that the issuance and liability remain with the central bank, but the distribution and operations are within the private sector. So in this case, commercial banks or fintechs. So I did also want to perhaps just elaborate very briefly on, so how does this relate to disintermediation? So... One small caveat, Paul, there aren't any retail CBDCs which are truly live in large developed markets. So I think these are theorized concerns, if I can share that, but concerns nonetheless that a CBDC could potentially crowd out the role of commercial banks, particularly in their ability to raise deposits, which may then impact their ability to lend. So Paul, it's not a very well-known fact but the bulk of new money creation is typically triggered by commercial banks. So in this case, a successful loan deposited into an account creates new commercial bank money. And to build on that, their guidelines, as I'm sure a lot of the audience is aware, that banks have to abide to, which include asset-to-liability ratios or loan-to-deposit ratios. So the concern in some quarters is that if CBDCs are successful, they could potentially crowd out commercial banks if the public, say, has a preference to keep their funds in, in the shape of CBDCs which then means that the first or second order impacts are that commercial banks have to find other forms of funding, which could be pricier, which in turn then leads to higher interest rates on loans that you and I may wish to take out. So to wrap it up, Paul, many central banks, the BOE included, have suggested a cautious approach, which include perhaps introducing caps on how much CBDCs that a citizen can hold. The CBDCs are probably going to be non-interest bearing and also then phasing in higher amounts depending on how the initial pilot outcomes go. So are these concerns real? Are they overblown? I think it's too soon to say, but a prudent approach for something this important certainly seems sensible. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it'll be interesting to see how it all evolves moving forwards. I mean, with all the kind of activity that we're seeing at the moment globally, do you think there's a sense from central banks they have to be exploring these now to avoid being left behind and given the potential impact that they might have. Definitely. I certainly get that sense. And it's actually not dissimilar from what we observe, say, with the explosion of real-time payment projects in Asia about five to seven years ago now, how and the regulators were speaking to one another, comparing notes, and then iterating on top of each country's success or failures when it came to real-time payments deployments. And let's ask ourselves this, right, Paul, if you are a central banker, 
can you really afford to get left behind, right? Central banks are tasked with implementing monetary policy, ensuring financial stability and controlling money supply. And beyond the typical highly regulated commercial banks, if they are new actors on the scene and they potentially could impact your ability to carry out your job, I think it's not surprising that the central banks are responding and really studying this space very closely. There are more than 100 banks now looking at CBDCs. And as mentioned earlier, there are only two that are officially live, if you believe the website cbdctracker.org. But if you scroll down further, you'll notice that you know, a vast number of pilots, proof of concepts and research underway. And this really doesn't surprise me at all, Paul. We spoke about retail CBDCs a bit earlier from a domestic context, but as we'll soon learn, right, CBDCs also have cross-border use cases. And switching up again, I guess, to look at wholesale CBDCs, then what use cases exist there and then what difficulties exist in terms of their implementation? Great question, Paul. And before I jump into detail again, I would actually highly recommend the audience to read Fabio Panetta's uh, September 22 speech at the Bundesbank. Mr. Panetta is the executive board member at the ECB, and I felt that his speech was one of the most balanced ones I've read recently. He stated some really hard facts on wholesale CBDCs, ranging from do we really need uh, underlying DLT technology in some cases, and also that wholesale CBDCs, at least domestically, are already here in some shape or form, right? And they're a lot more straightforward given a narrower set of stakeholders. Now that I've gotten that out of the way, let me answer your question and look at some of the use cases and challenges. So broadly speaking, we see two main use cases in the wholesale CBDC space. The first is to settle cross-border payments. And the second is for domestic settlement for banks, uh, primarily say within the securities space. So to maybe bring this to life a bit better, Paul, let me give you an example of Project Enbridge, which is an effort between the central banks of Hong Kong, UAE, China, and uh, Thailand, anchored by the BIS. HSBC was lucky enough to participate in three out of the four markets, so we have some pretty decent understanding of what went down. So what was Enbridge? It originally started as two independent CBDC explorations in Hong Kong and Thailand. And these two central banks later teamed up on what was known as Project Lion Rock and Intanon to explore cross-border use cases. So this was really brought to life by the creation of a common DLT platform for all four jurisdictions where all the participating commercial banks, uh, we all place reserves on the one-to-one basis with the central bank. And with this, admittedly, MVP or pilot platform, the participating banks, we actually managed to conduct real-time payment and settlement with one another across all four currencies on a 24-7 basis. And this was really notable, Paul, because it was the first production live scenario where a multilateral CBDC platform was brought to life. And what was really interesting to me as well is that we actually worked directly with our corporate customers to trial this. So yes, there were many aspects of the platform that remained fairly basic. There was a high level of coordination. But at least technically, we proved that wholesale CBDCs could indeed support the settlement of cross-border payments, right? So going back to your the section of your question, Paul, on challenges, everything isn't fine and dandy, right? And I think reading the Enbridge summary report from the BIS will clearly spell out that there are challenges that remain. And to me, the way I think about it is that we really need to kind of orchestrate this Goldilocks zone where different jurisdictions can really cooperate across a whole range of complicated aspects, say from monetary policy, 
how can each country maintain uh, sovereignty right, over their monetary policy? How do they look to harmonize or find a middle ground amongst regulations, the legal categorization of the platform, and even the underlying platform ownership? Right? And it's no mean feat you know, to, to really negotiate uh, all that. And I think another point I just wanted to add, Paul, is that a lot has been made of wholesale CBTCs or other blockchain-based infrastructure really being the death knell for the current correspondent banking framework. And I'm not here to extol the virtues of correspondent banking, but I think that its demise right, has clearly been over-exaggerated in my humble opinion. So yes, Enbridge proof, right? You can remove a certain level of uh, intermediaries, but as I mentioned earlier, scaling this into the wild to handle the trillions of dollars that banks move on a daily basis is altogether a different matter, right? Re it really requires coordination, as I mentioned earlier, from process, funding, how do you harmonize AML sanctions and a host of other tough questions. So yes, you can theoretically move away from the long chain of correspondent banking and point to a platform in the middle, but then that, that then raises the questions of who runs the platform, who sets the rules, be it operational, commercial, amongst others. And no easy answers here, I'm afraid, Paul. So I think in short, we believe Enbridge and other recent projects have proven that the tech largely works, but I think it's the messy problems of human coordination that remain. And Paul, final point I'll make on this, because I realized that I spoke mainly on cross-border settlement use case as an example of wholesale CBDCs. But there's also a fair amount of work happening with the domestic wholesale CBDCs, as I mentioned, largely within securities. And this is where how atomic DVP or what is known as delivery versus payment can be achieved to really speed up, say, the settlement cycle and remove friction in this space. I believe these truly all are really worthy experiments as I think we are inevitably, right, as society moving towards an always-on 24-7 world. The last thing I'll say here is that we don't believe in HSBC that every single use case necessitates a digital currency. So there are certain things that HSBC is looking at perhaps to create better off-ramps into the normal fiat world whilst allowing the benefits of blockchain in terms of instant value transfer. So we'll definitely come back to share more information on that in due course. Excellent. Sounds good. I, I mean, I guess in terms of, you know, rolling these out then, is there a chance that your retail and wholesale CBCCs could be part of the same infrastructure? And then what might be some of the design considerations there, if so? Short answer is that it's probably too soon to say. I'm not aware of there being a lot of literature examining this area. And I think more importantly, there aren't really enough real-life examples of CBDCs for the industry to draw any meaningful conclusions. And if you think about it, as we described earlier, the use cases are slightly different. We would anticipate retail CBDCs to be high volume, low value. And it's the polar opposite with wholesale CBDCs, right? Uh, low volume, high value. The end users are also different, right? Be as I mentioned earlier with retail CBDCs and wholesale CBDCs. So in that case, maybe privacy would also need to be addressed slightly differently as well. So would this suffice to consider having two different platforms? I don't know. I think conversely, one would, could argue that if an indirect retail CBDC is issued, then the primary users or those who connect with the central bank infrastructure would be commercial banks. And depending on other criteria, perhaps a frequency of settlement, maybe there is a case for infrastructure harmonization. But I think Paul, it's short. Uh, I think this is clearly a case where it depends is a reasonable or possible answer. Excellent. Sounds good. 
we're still largely in the pilot stage, it seems, with the CBDCs. Um, just briefly, I mean, if you had to put the Nostradamus hat on here and put a number on how long it might take, how long do you think in terms of like maybe years we're going to start seeing full launches for these and picking up mainstream usage? I'm sorry, Paul, but you just evoked my favorite response of it depends again. I just made a quick, quick reappearance. Um, I guess for reasons I already shared earlier, some would say wholesale CPDCs are already here in some shape or form, right? In the form of RTGS settlement accounts and various central banks are indeed experimenting with this, maybe more so on an evolutionary basis by, you know, uh, continuing to add new capabilities and nothing wrong with that, I say, right? Innovation needs to solve a business problem at the end of the day. But then moving on to cross-border wholesale CBDCs, right? Okay, I'll play along and you wear that Nostradamus hat to, to use your words. I think we will see gradual maturation as each experiment kind of sets a new precedent for others to follow. And it really wouldn't surprise me if we see at least one trade corridor. So in this case, two trading partners progressively starting to use wholesale CBDCs in the next 12 to 18 months. As for retail CBDCs, I think it's different time scales for different markets, right? Highly developed markets are probably going to take much more time as their higher bars, right? Be it under the legislative process or just making the case to their citizens. The one thing I want to stress, however, is that I definitely see the industry maturing away from a tech for tech sakes experimentation into what business problem am I solving mindset. And I I can see this across many different markets. So where I'm based, Hong Kong, right? Seriously exploring bond tokenization in Singapore, Project Orchid on purpose-bound money, having some very clear use cases, or even the Reserve Bank of Australia, RBA, recently announcing on the EAUD pilot, looking at 14 different use cases, including livestock auctions, I might add. Yeah, very Aussie, right? I know. And uh, jokes aside, I think there's a lot to be admired with the RBA's proposed use cases, right? Ranging from offline payments, nature-based bond asset trading, or even CBDC interoperability with Web3, just to name a few. I think final point Paul I'll make on this is that, and I think this relates both to future of money and maybe even life more broadly, I think we should always remain open-minded and be prepared to change our minds if new information comes to light. And actually, just as we record this, there was a new report a couple of days back on Project Icebreaker, which is the interlinking of retail CBDCs between the Swedish, Norwegian, and Israeli central banks, where they're testing out a retail cross-border use case, right? So I think I haven't properly digested it yet, but it definitely looks interesting and it certainly adds to the reservoir knowledge on this topic, Paul. Excellent. And just quickly to finish off, it looks like CBDCs are, are kind of on the way and potentially going to be the future there. How can companies and, and corporates get prepared for these? Okay, this is a tough one on CBDCs, right? Delivering real commercial benefits at scale. And the reason why I say that is that ultimately, money is still subject to the rules of network effects, right? So what that means is that you need to have a laser sharp focus on UX or user experience. And I feel that for CBDCs to thrive, it needs to be demonstrably better than other forms of money, right? Like does the average person care that CBDCs could be deemed as safer given it's a claim on a central bank rather than a commercial bank or private company? I Probably not. That's it. Let's not forget that central banks and governments probably have multiple options in their toolkit and could deploy various methods, right, to see CBDCs succeed. And let's also not forget that we haven't really defined what success looks like. Is that viewed from a consumer lens of having 
cheaper, better, faster payment options. I mean, as a consumer, I certainly hope so. Always success viewed as a central bank resting full control over their monetary landscape, right? And they think, how about those potential concerns that we spoke about earlier? How are they going to be addressed, right? From say disintermediation, privacy, and how are we going to navigate some of these trade-offs? So Paul, never, never dull the payments, as I say, and there's really lots to mull over. But to quickly also then address your question on how companies can get better prepared, there's certainly a few things I would recommend. The first is that just having a greater appreciation of the various forms of money that we spoke about at the start and what their respective risk profiles are would be a really good place to start, right? And forming an internal view on whether this really matters to the company. I would also urge companies, corporates to think about interoperability. Yes, I mentioned that cash, commercial bank money is largely indistinguishable. But if we are headed to a future where there's going to be CBDCs, tokenized deposits, crypto regulated stable coins, how are we going to interoperate? How will you know your accounting systems or your policies internally cater for this landscape? I think that definitely bears a bit of thinking. And if you are a retail or direct-to-consumer business, Think about your customers. How will your customers right, adopt these various different payment types? How would this impact them and how they choose to pay you? If you're a B2B company, could this potentially impact you as well? So I think having someone in the company who understands or is perhaps passionate about this space and giving them formal or informal responsibility to stay abreast and keep some of the key divisions apprised is definitely something I would recommend. And I think payments fall are constantly evolving, right? But the pace of change, as I mentioned earlier, has ramped up significantly. And at times it's a struggle to keep up, if I'm being honest, right? There's headline after headline, which hits you on a daily basis. So I think having the right context and forming a view helps. And in terms of forming a view, I firmly believe that payments are critically important public good, and we need to continue building as robust as possible, a public-private partnership. So whether these are CBDCs, interlinking real-time payments, whether these are permission or public blockchains, or even solving kind of related problems, such as, say, digital identity, I really feel that the industry collaboration should only increase. And this includes all a much stronger voice from the end users, right? Be that retail, corporates as well. close out our podcast again we now have our infamous fintech jails this is where we ask for an industry term buzzword or trend that our guest has seen or heard enough of within debate whether it deserves a place in the jail or if it's already there whether it needs an extended sentence or of course our guest can argue to free one of the previously incarcerated terms so nick which buzzword and would you like to hand a sentence to oh wow i saw your list i don't know where to start but uh it was a really tough choice but i'm gonna make a case to release nfts not because I'm a huge fan of monkey or alien JPEGs, Paul. Uh, and I agree the hype cycle was way overblown. In some instances, things maybe even got a bit scammy. But I'm proposing a release because of the underlying utility that NFTs can potentially bring, right? And I think many of us have experienced this, right? From, say, event ticketing, uh, POAP or you know, proof of attendance passes, uh, token-gated commerce, just to name a few. So if you kind of take NFTs, couple that with some cryptographic advances such as, say, zero-knowledge proofs or ZKPs, I think they have the potential to solve a lot of real-world problems, right? When you strip away the hype and the speculation. Yes, I can hear skeptics already, right? Already calling for my head talking about NFTs. But and I do acknowledge the legal frameworks do need to catch up as well. And love it or hate it, 
I think there's no denying that the crypto hype cycle has accelerated progress in many of these domains, for CBDCs included. And the optimist in me is quite bullish that we'll see some common good right, emerge from NFTs and a lot of these technologies sooner, hopefully, rather than later. Yeah, for sure. I think when NFT was initially jailed back at the start of season three, I think the suggestion as at the time was that the space wasn't mature enough. And it was, like you say, at the start of that hype cycle. And um, there was, whilst it was being thrown in, it was there was an agreement there that there was potential to have tools outside of that kind of digital art kind of arena. I mean, do you think the space has matured now since that initial, that hype cycle? And we are starting to see exciting use cases for this now? Yes, definitely. In the... Hong Kong Fintech Week, which was, I think, in early November, we all had a proof of attendance, NFTs as well. I think this was part of the government's initiative just to explain to, to the general public on how NFTs work. And as I said, beyond, you know, alien or monkey JPEGs, NFTs do potentially have a lot of utility for some of the use cases that I mentioned. And that's why I would lobby quite hard to make a case to release NFTs for a greater common good that they could potentially bring to society. It sounds good to me. I'm quite happy to break it out now. I think it's be time to give it some freedom and see what, see what we can really do with that underlying technology. Well, that's all we have time for this episode of the podcast. Thanks, of course, to Nick for joining me. As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at Fintech Futures, and of course on LinkedIn. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service to get notified about future episodes. Thanks as well to Arama for editing this podcast. You can check them out at arama.tv. As always, thank you very much for your support. We'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech, but until then, goodbye.